chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Right. Um, there you go. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. And good morning. Excited to be moving forward in eldership with Mark, and it's always a good sign when you have to pull an elder out of the kids' ministry to bring it forward. That's what we're looking for here. What is great to see you, and whether you are uh, one of our longtime members of the last few years, or if this is one of your first visits and you're just checking out the church, we want to invite you to our celebration dinner, which is 10 days away. This is the biggest thing that we do as a church, the best thing that we do. It's, it's a ton of fun. So what we're going to do is add up in the cafeteria in this building, where we've got a lot of food that's coming in, so you're going to eat, we're going to sing, we're going to pray. Uh, we're installing new members. You're going to hear from Mark. We have a, a lot of news that we're going to share about our leadership transitions, about our vision for the next few months, the next few years. And so, uh, really, I mean, I, I normally don't like to create FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. But if you're not at this dinner, you will just regret it to the moon back. I mean, this is, this is the thing you want to be at. So that's next week. If you can do us a favor and sign up online, that's in the back of the and then on the little invite card in there as well. Now, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark all semester, and we've been focusing on the life and teachings of Jesus and what they mean for us as his disciples. And we're asking, what does it look like for us to become more like Jesus and to walk in his path in the 21st century? Well, what we're looking at today is a, is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. This is the, the midway point in the book of Mark. And, it, and it's also a shift in the theme and the approach. And in fact, it gets a lot heavier. It starts to move more quickly. It's a turning point. And, and to understand how important this is, I want you to think with me, what was a, a major turning point in your life? Like a time in your own life, and I don't mean like the, the daily or the weekly decisions. I mean a moment where you knew everything changed based on this decision. I mean, maybe it even felt like a, a death of sorts, and you weren't sure what was going to be reborn, if anything, but a moment where you were, were absolutely pushed to the brink to a turning point. 
One of those moments in my own life came when I was, was 16. Probably the biggest and first turning point for me, especially in my faith. As I was 16, I was home with my family. It was just, it was after dinner, I was doing homework, and we, we got a phone call. And some of you know this story. We got a phone call. My older brother had been in a car accident. He was 18, he was a freshman at Truman, we were living in Kansas City. And we got this call that said he needed to come down to Columbia, that he had been flown to Columbia to the hospital here, and they couldn't give us any more information. And so my family, we, we hurried down here as quick as we could. We got here late at night. We, we filed into one of those little, little you know, consultation rooms. And then the doctors came in with, with their coats and their clipboards and gave us just the worst possible news that he had passed away at the moment of the, the accident earlier that morning. And I can remember so, so fondly the, the shock and the, the terror and, and the pain of that moment. Just, just hearing those words and, and knowing that everything from this point forward is going to change. And I'll share a little bit more of that, the end of the story in a moment. But, but it was one of those moments where you're not asking, what do I do? What do I do next? Or rather, who, who am I going to trust? I don't know if you've had those moments in life. The question is not even, what do I do? But it's just, just who do I trust? Am I going to put my, my faith in, in myself and my own ability to get through this thing? Or am I willing to to collapse on the Lord, to, to give everything to the Lord and trust that He is going to be the only one to get me through this. In the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus asks His disciples this question. Peter, in particular, responds. He asks them, who do you say that I am? And this is a turning point in the Gospels because it's the first time Jesus has, has positively identified Himself as the Messiah. And as soon as He does, He presses in the question, and so Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And from this moment, everything moving forward changes. But Jesus goes on to explain what kind of Messiah he is. He, he's not the all-conquering king, or at least not yet. Rather, he says in verse 31, one of the most important verses in all of Mark, the Son of Man must be rejected, be killed, and then rise again on the third day. This is not at all what Peter was expecting, what the disciples are expecting. This is the turning point. It says in the Gospel of Luke that in this moment, Jesus set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem. That means that he is moving directly towards the, the place where his, these religious leaders are that want to arrest him, that want to, want to charge him, and want to kill him. He's going directly to them. He's not going to hide out in, in Galilee. He's not going to stay up there and wait to be arrested, but instead he is walking directly to his own crucifixion and death. And in a sense, he's inviting every single one of us to join him. So this morning we're looking at three things, the suffering Savior, the way of the cross, and then the new life. So let's pick it up in verse 29. After a brief discussion of who the crowds think Jesus is, he, he turns to them and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, as I said, this is the first time we've seen this clear announcement of the Messiah, this role from one of the disciples. Actually, the first place that it happens comes from the mouth of a demon in chapter 5. But this is the first time that we've really seen that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King, the Son of David, the hope of Israel. He is the one. But what comes next is verse 30 and 31, and it's totally unexpected. 
Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now we can easily be desensitized to how how important this is or, or how just mind-blowing this would have been to the disciples. Because up until this point in the first century, the Israelites have never connected this vision of a, of a promised Messiah King with the idea of suffering. Like those two things have never gone together before. They, they were expecting this Messiah who would come in and initiate this new kingdom with power and overthrow the other nations and Israel would be the great world power. Now there are prophecies in the Old Testament, a lot in the book of Isaiah, that say that there would be this suffering servant who would come. And yet they had never connected that with the Messiah because they couldn't reconcile that we could have a Messiah and a suffering servant in the same person. They thought it would be a prophet who would come and, and who would suffer and lead the way for the Messiah. But they certainly didn't expect a suffering Messiah. And that's exactly why Peter rebukes him. It, it made no sense to him. Jesus spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so Peter thought, now we've got the Messiah. We've got the one who will lead us to glory. And Peter probably also thought, look, I'm one of his closest friends. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be on one of the thrones at his right or his left hand. And that's why Jesus says so specifically that you have in mind merely human concerns. And Jesus even sees Satan's temptations behind Peter's words. Satan's temptations are always to take the easy way out, to, to go right for glory and not to wait on the timing of the Lord, not to suffer. So Jesus rejects it as strongly as possible. There's only one path for Jesus, only one path for his disciples, and only one path us. That's the second thing. It's the way of the cross. Verse 34. And they called the crowd to him. So see, first he's only speaking with his disciples in his previous verses, but now he calls the entire crowd to him. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for anyone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And so Peter and his disciples had in mind a throne, and yet what Jesus has in mind is a cross. And even this word would have been shocking. We can, we can forget that as well. The cross can become just something we put on as a, as a necklace to complete the outfit. It's, it was totally different in the first century because only the Romans would use this form of execution. This was not a fast and painless death. This was a, a means of torture that would draw out somebody's life for as long as possible before they finally suffocated in, in full public view of everyone else. And so this is a shameful image, this cross. And Jesus is saying, my way is the way of the cross. He's saying, I am the Messiah, I am the King, but there's only one way to get you back. Notice he said back in verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer. He must die. And that's because he's the only, is the only way for us first to have our sins paid for. Because the penalty of our sin is death. You see that throughout the scriptures. And so Jesus 
We must take this penalty or else it stands against us forever. And in the same way, on the other hand, it's the only way for us to be restored to the Father to give new life. The only way for Jesus' righteousness and holiness to cover us so that when we stand before God the Father, we see what Jesus sees, which is just a big smile. We see the happiness of God over us, the love of God, unfiltered and unconditional, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. This is the only way. Jesus must suffer. He's saying, my way is the way of the cross. Before I receive glory, I must be rejected. Before I ascend into heaven, I must descend into the grave. Before I'm worshipped by all, I must be hated by all. But he's also saying this, that your way is the way of the cross. Not only is Jesus' way the way of the cross, but, but for all of us, our way is the way of the cross. He's saying if you want to save your life, you must lose it. It's a, it's a famous paradox, but what does it mean? To lose your life is to give up the very things that you cling to most closely, to give up your, your very sense of self. The word life here is from the Greek psyche, which means your life source or your identity, the core of your being, your sense of self. And so Jesus is not merely saying give up one morning a week, give up a little bit of your income as long as it's convenient for you. He's saying give me the very core of your being. Give up whatever ambitions or possessions or sources of identity that you hold most near. I can't be your accessory. I have to be your everything. Now, yesterday I was playing a little board game with the boys' life. You remember this game, the game of life? They've become addicted to it lately. Uh, now, life is a lot of fun. It's actually helpful. We have our seven-year-old be in the bank, and so he's doing mental math, and like, you know, all that stuff's really good for him. But it's also straight from, from hell. Here's what. Here's the objective of the game, straight from the instructions. I wrote them down. Objective of the game. Move your car from start to retirement and experience all sorts of unexpected adventures. The player with the most money at the end of the game wins. Alright, so teachable moment. Right? I'm trying to, you know, help them through this game, help them learn the math, but I'm also like making them pie and stuff like that. And so that's 10%. You know what? I'll be the church. They land on the bed, so quote Bonhoeffer when Christ calls away. All out on the game alone. We're minded of the words of the old Baptist preacher at the end of the game, and all goes back in the box. <laughs> now, the Apostle Paul, I think, is the most helpful in helping us understand what Jesus means by losing your life. Deny yourself, laying down your life. In 2 Corinthians 5, he used a little bit different language. It's not synonymous, but it's close. He says, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. And so Paul is saying, put to death your old self. Your old way of life, your old way of, of perceiving yourself and of perceiving the world. Put it all to death. And then not just like set it aside, but actually crucify it, let it die. So that you can be able to take on your new self. So Peter wanted to have Jesus and have the power and control and comfort and everything else. And yet Jesus is saying to him and to us, you have to give him all love. 
What good is the whole world if you have to forfeit your soul? For you can be lifted up, you have to go low. And so the question is, why? Why is this the case? And I've heard this preached a lot of times, and I remember hearing this as, as a young man or as a kid, and I never really understood why. I mean, why does Jesus teach this? Why does he demand that we lay down our life in the very core of our being? Is it cruelty, you know? Is it like just getting us to, to walk in his path of suffering so we kind of feel everything that he went through? I think the reality is, in light of, of the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the Scriptures, we can see that that's not true. But instead, that he wants the very core of our being because it's the best thing for us. It's what we were made for. And it should be encouraging and overwhelming that God actually wants all of us, that he wants the very core of our being, that he loves us enough, that he overlooks our sin enough, that he can't even see it in the first place, that he would want the very core of our being. I mean, imagine being in a, in a relationship. Imagine marrying somebody who, who wasn't really all in or was going to hold back a part of themselves. You didn't really care, or maybe you were just like the last option. That's, that's no marriage, you know? Or what if you had a friend that was only a friend if you helped them move next Saturday, you know? And instead, when, when we love someone, true love is giving yourself away. It's, it's letting all of your, your life go for the sake of this other person. And Jesus is saying, I'm willing to give everything for you, but I want you in return. I want the real you, I want the core of you, I want you as you are. But I don't want you holding on to all this other stuff that's just going to keep you from me. It's not your service and your devotion that he's after. He already has everything that he needs. But he wants you because he and the Father and the Spirit decided long ago that you would live for him. That you would find your, your, your ultimate meaning and satisfaction in life in him. C.S. Lewis says, he who has Christ and everything else has no more than he who has Christ alone. Now this is the last thing, the new one. Jesus calls us, he, he summons us, I and mean, even to say that he invites us is not quite strong enough, but he, he like subpoenas us, or he, he calls us into his presence. And he calls us to believe in him, to turn from our old ways, to, to lay the old stuff down, and it's actually all of what baptism represents, which is what we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes. It's death and resurrection. The old self is buried under the water, and the new self is risen to everlasting life. It's a physical demonstration of the spiritual reality of becoming a believer. That's all that Christ is for us. It's not just a new self, but it's a new self through rebirth, through resurrection. Now we go back to that, that terrible night when I was 16. The story sticks with me in, in particular in relationship to this passage. Because in that moment I, I found, you know, found my way out of that little room where family and friends are coming in. And I just had to get away because I'm an introvert and just the moment was too much. And so I found a staircase and went up at one of the top floors of the hospital. It was under construction, so nobody was up there. I remember just falling on my knees and crying out to God. The, the pain and, and the anger in this moment was so strong. And just crying out to God, why? Why would you let this happen? And I remember feeling as, as strongly as any other person in the presence of Christ with me. 
It wasn't so much an embodied experience, rather it was, it was the presence of Christ with me in that moment, the same way that all of you were. And the thing that he said to me, he asked me the same thing that he asked me, who do you say that I am? It wasn't a, a test or a demand, rather it was, it was an invitation, it was, it was the gentlest thing. There's a way of saying, you know who I am. Where else would you go and trust me in this? Who are you going to say that I am? In that moment, a, a peace that transcends all understanding set over me has, has maintained thousands of struggles since then. But the presence of Christ came on me in that moment like I've never experienced. So you don't need a, a special vision or encounter. Most moments aren't like that. But the question is, who really is Jesus for you? Who do you say that he is? Not even your, your spouse or your parents or your friends or anybody else, but who do you say that Jesus is? And this question invites us simply to look to him. To see his life in the scriptures as we've been doing this semester, to, to study how he interacts with people, especially the poor and the needy and the broken, because that's exactly who we are. To look to Jesus and to see his heart, how he, he calls these disciples out of their old way of life, and he totally transforms them. They're totally new people after a few years of Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, we see a relationship that's not marked by what we can do for him, but simply being with him. It's not what you can accomplish for him, it's not what you do for him or anything like that. He wants the very core of your being. So Jesus is calling out to you even now, come and die with me. Because to die with him is also to rise with him. There's no resurrection if there hasn't been dead. Nothing is resurrected that hasn't first died. And so yes, he's inviting you to come and to lay your life down because it's the only way to take up your life again. Only if you lose your life will you find a life that can never be lost. And so collapse in his love, relax in his grace, follow him to the cross and he'll lead you all the way to resurrection. That's right.